Welcome to Our Family Stories, the only podcast that shares stories about my awesome family. We have the Waits, the McKinleys, the Smolens, the Crofts, and the Clausens. And we have a few visitors here and there. I love you guys, and I hope you all enjoy this episode of Our Family Stories. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Our Family Stories. This episode, I sat down with mom and had her share some stories about her mom. Fantastic interview, thank you mom, appreciate that. Uh, These are fun for me to put together. And uh, we start off the episode with the song Sisters because mom said that this was one of Grandma Ison's favorite songs. The recording came out gravelly, which I thought was perfect for kind of how it would sound if, say, Grandma Ison was at home listening to the song on the radio. So... And then at the stay tuned at the very end of this episode of our recording, I have a kind of a fun little a fun little recording that I put together. So enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Haynes sisters. having sisters as cute as that? It's incredible. Sisters, sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. Caring, sharing, every little thing that we are wearing. When a certain gentleman arrived from Rome, she wore the dress and I stayed home. All kinds of weather, we stick together, the same in the rain or sun. Two different faces, but in tight places, we think and we act as one. <laughs> Those who've seen us know that not a thing could come between us. Many men have tried to split us up, but no one can. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. All right, we're just sitting here with mom tonight. It's me, mom, Tanya. Our kids are upstairs. No guarantee on not getting background noise from them. Um, but we're going to talk about 
we're going to talk about uh, mom's mom, Donna, and kind of give like a life sketch and maybe some favorite stories and really mom's sitting here with a bunch of notes, like really small. All on one page. Really small writing. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just going to hand it over to you. And then if I have any questions, I'll let you know. Okay. So I am mom, Laura Dawn Eisen McKinley, just to make identify who I am. And I'm going to talk about my mother, Dona Hanson Eisen. And I think it's real interesting to think about their family structure. Her mother, Lydia, and dad, Augustus, bore 12 children. And that's a little unusual these days, not so unusual those days, perhaps. And one of the interesting things to me is that grandma lost three babies as littles. So the family order was um, baby was born and died, very first birth, and then a brother and then my mom. So she was the oldest daughter and because of that had lots of responsibilities in helping to care for the needs of the household. And the interesting fact that she pointed out to me was the next sister, I'm not going to identify all the boys, but the next sister was born five years after Dona, and that was Aunt Elda. And the next sister was born five years after that, and that was Aunt Loma. And that's the one that my kids know the best because they spent the most interaction with her. And the next sister was Laura, who is, I guess, I'm her namesake. And died she died young so anyway that was the sister spread and the other thing I wanted to say about um, these babies I don't know how Hans Stanley died that was the first baby death but Laura had that problem where you um, are we okay uh, yeah I'll just stop you if we're not okay we're totally um, fine she had that thing that babies have now that like they can't digest the food won't go into their tummies and they do immediate surgery on the babies these days. But on baby Laura, they had no way to fix that. So basically she cried, starving to death, until she went into a coma. Oh. And she lived five days. And mom talked about helping to care for her her last night that she was living. And one of the adults handed the um, chimney lamp across the front of the baby to another adult and the little glass chimney tilted off and hit the baby on the cheek and the baby did not cringe and that my mom knew that and she was 15 knew that that baby was unconscious and so the next morning as my mom woke up she heard the sawing of wood and that was a knowing to her that they were preparing the slab to lay the baby out that that means the baby had died that's always touched my heart that, you know, she was, she loved babies. And so, you know, she was very invested in this little baby that had been born that did not get to live. And that was the 11th child born. And then the 12th child born also died. But that little guy, the last birth of grandma, Grandma Lydia, his name was Blaine. And he lived five months. So they were loving on him. And then he got flu and pneumonia and died. So I think that would be super, super sad. Your last baby, all of them would be sad. But anyway, that's the era they lived in that 
there were some things they could do for each other and some things they could not. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> my mom was born um, June 30th of 1915. And her dad was a farmer, and he built the very first silo in their little community. And he was 72 when he died. Her mom was 90 when she died, so that would be Gus and Lydia. And then my mom lived, I can't remember if it was 96 or 97, but we had 97. It's got some longevity there. Where, so, where, was, where, where was she... Where did they build the silo? What, where was um, that at? They lived in Lakeside, and then they had a Woodlands Ranch two miles away. So at some point, they lived on the ranch, and then when the oldest child had to go to school, they moved into Lakeside and lived in that house that she talks about a lot that was all the different constructions. And then they would move back and forth summer and winter sometimes to take care of the cattle, and, but it was in that kind of northern Arizona area. So he raised a garden and raised meat and chickens and stuff, so they were as pretty self-sufficient as they could be with things to cook and can. Um, interesting way of life. I thought it would be interesting that they had a, a wood range cooking for their heat, and they had to heat their water there to take their baths. They didn't get running water until my mom was 14, running water into the house. So any water you used, you had to haul it from the creek. Wow. And that would be amazing. How, how did they, how did they, do they just like put a fire underneath the tub or do you have any idea of how, how, that, how that was done? They had some sort of a reservoir lifted up above this mm -hmm. stove that they cooked on and they put water in that. So what about would, well, what take ab that hot water and put it in a tub? Oh, okay. And add cooler water to it. Oh, okay. And I don't know who got the first bath. <laughs> I don't know if mom and dad got the first ones, but I think the younger you are in the family, <laughs> the darker the water was, because this is going to be a once a week thing. The cleaning, the clean water was the over forty water. Totally. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what the order of things was, but you didn't race that water either. You would go put it on the garden. When you were done with it ah, and, yeah. and water things that need to be watered because you know that was just you didn't want to have to go get more water <laughs> um let's see one of the interesting things she mentioned was that back then when the sacrament was passed at church the deacon had a some sort of a glass and a pitcher and he poured it in the glass, and you passed the glass down the row and took a sip and passed it on. And I remember my mom just <laughs> really cringing about the guys with mustaches would mm. hang over in the water. <laughs> and it creeped her out a little bit. But anyway, so some things that we have going on now. No way. That is crazy. I know. I know. somebody's sick. <laughs> I know. I know. So it's something that you just don't think about. No. Until you've had to. Anyway, everybody got to swallow with that. Their entertainment in the community was dances and plays, and the church tended to be where the school would gather and all of that. And they did candy-making parties, and so you would just bring a cup of sugar to the candy-making party, and everybody contributed that much. And then they would all make taffy or something like that, and, and that was their social thing. And the kids, little kids would be put to bed in the wagon outside with their blankies, and the, and the grown-ups would be at a dance, and the older kids. So it's, like, different than now. They played together. 
um, she spoke about her responsibility as the oldest daughter was to help a lot with the laundry. And when they had plenty of diapers, I mean like a lot of dirty diapers, and they had a barrel on the back porch, I guess full of water, and when baby had wet or pooped a diaper, that got thrown in the barrel. And then at some point, I don't know, it was once a week or twice a week, mom would have to go out there and scrub those diapers. Oh. And I can't quite imagine what that was like. But I remember her talking about being out there and it was cold and a wind was blowing on her and she was scrubbing these diapers on coarse water that she probably had to bring from the creek. And I don't know how much was cold water and how much was hot water. I don't know those parts. But she was weeping about, why do I have to do this? Why do we have so many diapers and so many babies? I would be weeping too. That sounds awful. (laughs) Oh, cold and stinky and... Who knows? You just imagine fishing those out, like trying to find... Oh, I don't know if they emptied them at all before they put them there. I do not remember that I guess that's true. They probably empty out them. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Let's see. There's something else that was buzzing through my head about that. Oh, the other thing that I hadn't heard about until I think I was an adult, when you guys were little... Most of us mom, well, I as a mom used cloth diapers and plastic pants. We buy plastic pants to go on the top so they're not leaking into the bed, theoretically, or the clothes. Back then, they didn't have the plastic pants. And the women knit um, soakers is the word they used. So it was a knit pant that went over the cloth diaper. Now this I do not understand because <laughs> it's not keeping the moisture from going everywhere, right. but it's slowing it down a little bit. And I have no idea how you washed and maintained those knit little pant things that go on the baby. How you'd keep, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody smelling good more than once, one moment during the week. <laughs> so that's a bit of a mystery for me, but that's what they were dealing with. Um, of course, one of the helping themselves was that the mom did sewing for most of the clothing needs for the children and she knew how to make and adjust patterns because she was you know making her own pattern for things that they wore which is a pretty amazing thing um when they ironed all their fabrics were like cotton base so they're going to wrinkle in a flash and there was something called a sad iron i don't know how that name came up but it was a handle and then they would have at least two really heavy metal iron-shaped things, and they would sit on the top of the stove, and you'd put the handle on one of them and bring it over to whatever your ironing surface was and iron until you kind of lost the heat. Then you would sit that one on the stove and put the handle on the other one and bring it, and you had to be careful because it might be so hot that it's going to singe your clothing, so you would sprick it with some water to hear the sizzle to know how hot it was. And she had ironed, like... 30-some shirts a week for all of their needs. I don't even know if they had that many, but she wrote that number down. And so (laughs) we didn't have any polyester combinations that look good when you finish hanging them out to dry. They just were all cotton and wrinkly. So that was one of her tasks was to help with that. Um, Grandma Lydia canned like a 1,000 quarts a summer quarts of fruit, quarts of vegetables, and she figured if she had a 1,000, she might have enough to get her kids through the winter. That is an incredible amount of hot kitchen and um, jars and labor. So that kind of blows my mind. 
um, mom talks about two major health concerns when she was little. When she was 16, I guess she's not super little, a bunch of them got the measles. And um, hers, the extreme, and I've never heard of this before, result for hers was that her hair fell out. Big strip down the top of her head. And she was 16. And she had this not mohawk <laughs> and unmohawk down the front. It was so embarrassing. And she did have some sort of a hat that she would wear when she went to church. But it took a while for that hair to grow back in. And it was just an extreme result from probably the fever or whatever wow. she'd had from the measles. And then um, the other one that you've heard about, I think, is when she was 21, her teeth were so bad that the dentist recommended she totally pull them out and get dentures on top. And that happened in like June or July, and she was not able to be fitted with her dentures till November or December. And at 21, no teeth on top. Oh. And she says, it was okay when I kept my mouth closed, but when I smiled, people could say it, see it. And she was embarrassed and, and hesitant to be social at all. But when she got them, she was thrilled because then she could chew. And, you know, she could finally have kind of her normal life wow. back again. But she tells her story about this, of standing at the front gate with, she called him boyfriend, some guy had come and was just talking to her, and this was after she had her teeth, and so she felt confident and all of that. And she was chewing on the leaf of a rose, and it got stuck at the top of her roof of her mouth and was tickling her, and so she went, <laughs> to get the leaf out, and her teeth flew out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and she thought she was going to die. Oh. She grabbed and ran in the house and just, like, never wanted to see that person again. <laughs> So I was like, oh, she remembered that all her life. I heard that story several times. Um, another thing that was, I think, pretty common back then, because when a mama had a baby, they stayed in bed six weeks. That was not uncommon. And so the nieces or young people in the neighborhood would go live with them and help take care of the mom and the baby during her confinement. And she's done that more than once, but at one point she talked about Aunt Grace, which is probably Lydia's sister. Um, I think this was this Aunt Grace's seventh baby, and she had hemorrhaged and was not well and needed to stay in bed. And they just lived in a very small house, and there was a fireplace and a stove and a bed in the living room where the mom slept with the baby with Donna. So here she is, a... I don't know if it's a teenager or if she's after high school. I don't know quite what the age was. Um, let's see if I have a note on that. I don't. Anyway, there was a blizzard. The house is not insulated, and so it's super cold. And the baby's a little fussy, and baby gets to sleep about midnight. And about three, the baby wakes up and needs to be fed and is wet through and through. And you can't undress the baby in that cold until you rebuild the fire in the stove. And so Donna gets up in the cold to rebuild the fire, get it warm enough that she can peel the baby down and get it some dry clothes on, give it to the mom to feed, and mom feeds it and gets back to sleep. And by then it's time to fix breakfast for the children that need to get to school. So... Six weeks of this, and she's gone 
I never want kids, and I'm tired of this, and I never want to do this again. <laughs> Don't know that she really got to have voice to that, but that's what she was thinking inside, because that was kind of like, you just help out. But she at least told her mom she was pretty much tired of that. Um, she went to college in dribs and drabs, like Gila and Thatcher. She went a little while. I think she listed three different colleges she went to. Um, and one that she went to, I, I won't get the names accurate here, she lived 18 blocks. She was staying with somebody 18 blocks from the campus, and she walked that four times a day because she didn't have any transportation, and she, had, she came home and ate a lunch there. I guess she didn't carry a lunch with you. She could not afford the books. She had like $25 for registration. She had saved that, and somebody gave her... Um, $10 credit for books and she had five more dollars. So she had $15 where she could buy something, I think maybe one book. And she was borrowing the others and was walking across the city to read somebody's book that was letting her borrow it and then walking back. So that lasted about one or two semesters and she failed classes and couldn't come back or didn't couldn't afford to come back. So it was like to get through a semester of college was a little different than having enough money to buy books and not read them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the jobs she had was being a cook in a, a, a place near McNary, and she felt obliged to take the job because the money was so good, and it was $60 a month. So she's cooking for a big crowd, and she wasn't much of a cook, but she was learning pretty fast. And um, there were some rough people in the camp and she had very strong feelings about boundaries so that they didn't think she was flirting. She was very conscious about not doing any kind of flirting for fear that they would get the wrong idea. And one time a guy did come into her, it wasn't a trailer, but it was a place where her bedroom was in the back and she got a very strong feeling that he was up to no good and he kept wanting, kept trying to initiate getting into farther and farther into that little building. And she was pretty panicked, but was able to finally get him out and lock that thing up. <laughs> <laughs> but she was very hypervigilant about self-care and trying to do the right thing. So that's good preservation for her. For four and a half years after she met Joe, my father, they had an on-again and off-again friendship and engaged once and got disengaged and then got re-engaged before their marriage. And so they kind of had this long thing and... Not like you could see each other very often. Their families knew of each other and knew these good families, but um, she kind of liked him, but she could not imagine sitting across the table from a redhead all her life because she'd been <laughs> so adamant to her mother, I will not marry a redhead. That's, a, that's she what had, she said? She had to change her mind, yes. <laughs> yes. Were they, I think I remember they were in different towns, right? Yes. So they wrote letters back and forth, Yeah, I'd they guess. did some letters. And once in a while, like at college, once he came and visited her, he offered to pay for her college. And she did not want to be obliged to him. So she, she said no. But that was interesting that, you know, he was independent enough. And he helped give some money to his sister when she was in college. Mm -hmm. So kind of a little watch care, a little characteristic there that is kind of endearing. Um, let's see. Oh, and the phrase that she wrote down that he used when they got engaged was, do you think 
you could think enough of me to marry me. <laughs> and she said yes. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> like been, both of them. Get off again. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have the detail on here, but when they married, you know, they were on their way to the temple and then just kept on going to Twin Falls. And so there was some tender heart on her knowing I am leaving my family and leaving my state and who knows when I'll be back, which is pretty accurate. Not a lot of going back to Arizona because mm -hmm. they went up to, uh, oh, where's the temple? Southern Utah. Uh, St. George? Yeah. Yeah. Manti. St. George. Manti. Oh my gosh, I can't remember right now. Okay, won't say. Um, anyway, they felt quite blessed that he was offered this job in Twin Falls because it was $90 a week. And that was more money than she'd ever seen. And so they were pretty excited about it. And he'd gone up and started work before they got married. And then he came down and they married and they went back up again. Um, they had, she had a strong testimony of tithing. And she said, we made our decision very early. And this is in their early marriage. They had a very small life insurance policy. And it came due and they didn't have enough to pay it. And uh, they said, well, you could pay half a year. And they had enough to either pay half a year or pay tithing. And they thought, we want to have it in our marriage. And so they dropped the policy and paid the tithing. And she said, that has set a precedent that we will always keep, and it's always blessed us. So appreciate, appreciate that about her. She helped me have that kind of decision in my life. Um, so they came to Twin Falls for two years, and then they moved to Caldwell, where he um, eventually bought his place there. And um, at age 27, see, they got married in 1940. 1943, Dad was made bishop. Age 27, pretty young little buck. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very modest... They're still sweeping the cigarette butts out of the place they were renting for church. And so he helped initiate getting things rolling so that they could build a church of their own. Um, they didn't have enough money to buy this hatchery, but it was a pretty good deal. And they were hoping they could get in, you know, because this is what he would like to do is be in business for himself. And his mother, Louis May Savage Ison, had an insurance policy that, I don't know if it was something she was cashing in or what the setting was, but um, it was worth $2,000. And she said, I'd be willing to lend this to you. And so much against their common, you know, for them to borrow money was radical, but they chose to do that. The total price on the hatchery was 7,500. So they made the down payment and during, it was during the war and people needed food. And so it was a very big business right then for them hatching is at the point. So people wanted to buy chickens so they could have meat and eggs. And so their business thrived. And 17 months later, they were able to have grandma paid off and the mortgage paid off. That is incredible. They felt so blessed. Yeah. And they built 
the house. I can't remember the timing on that. 55 or 56. So it's probably somewhat later. Anyway, they built the house while hatchering. Hatching was thriving. And then the bottom fell out. And then they were pretty humbled as this in this, in this new house. But it worked out in the long run. But things had to change, and he had to go into egg production because hatching, you had to get bigger, get out, and he didn't have the means to get big, get big. So, let's see. Got that paid off, yes. Oh, the construction loan for the red brick house was $18,000. And I, there, I, there's not another mention of, of another batch of money. My brain thought the total thing was 30000 That's something that's hooked in my brain, and I don't know if that's accurate or not. But Dad was his own, um, oh, what's the word, contractor. I didn't realize that. So he was the one that was bringing contractors in to do different things, and they did some of the work on themselves. So we, we moved in in January of 56, and then that year in April, he was called as a stake president. So he, he was the high councilman in that interim there. And I remember being in that setting apart and seeing tears from my dad. And that was new to me. But what I didn't know was that the first time my mom had ever seen him shed tears. And they had been married 16 years by that point. That was the first time she'd ever seen him shed tears? What she wrote in her history. Wow. I just remember being very stirred in that meeting, you know. You know, I'm, I didn't had no idea the burden on his shoulders, you know, what that was like, but evidently he was stirred by it. So jumping through, I'll come back a little bit to a few stories, but her next health crisis was at 79 when she had breast cancer and had a breast removed and then went on tamoxifen for five years and was pretty sobered, you know, by that process as we all were. Um, some other things that kind of were in my mind as I made some notes here. She told me somewhere along the way that her mom and dad had had some voices raised between them and it was enough to disturb her and for her to decide, I do not want that in my own home. And I know when I was studying parenting and relationships and stuff like that, she was kind of shaking her head going, we didn't have anything like that. We didn't have any way of learning any of that kind of stuff when I was growing up. And you know, when I heard my mom and dad, she didn't say much about it because she was very loyal to them. She says, I just knew I did not want yelling in my home. And she kept that. She stayed calm and cool no matter how naughty or whatever we were, and uh, brought that as a value into her home. And so I hand her that. There's things I didn't learn with that. <laughs> I didn't want to learn how to solve problems out loud. But I guess I have to learn something on my own. Um, very service-oriented. When she noticed that garments were being sold, in the stores, like at Penny's, non-Mormons were handling them and selling them to anybody. You know, anybody could walk in and buy them. That bothered her, and so 
an assignment came from the state relief site president to go for, to put them in a home. So I don't know if she volunteered or, you know, probably half volunteer, half being asked. So we had a, one closet in the living room full of women's garments and one closet in the living room full of men's garments. And we learned the lingo. Do you want cotton or Bemberg? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. that For they, years and years. They were the, basically the distribution center in, yes. out in their house? Yes. And um, she was not much of a mathematician, but she learned how to make those orders and get those orders in and never, never a paid service. She was totally doing this to offer people a way to get them and have respect shown for the garments. But, you know, she had to, considerable bookwork to keep that going. And all these nice little boxes that were so handy for our filing of our little stashes when they were done. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we kind of learned to handle that. And, and they kind of laugh about, well, it wasn't too funny for her, but she said I could not take a shower during the day because the doorbell would ring. So her life was not her own. She doesn't ring the doorbell and get a recommend. They can get eggs, they can get a babysitter, they can get garments, they can get counseling. <laughs> so sure, doorbell was ringing for all that kind of stuff. And early, when he was a bishop, <clears throat> they had many, many weddings performed in the middle of the living room, uh, particularly during the war, that, you know, they'd walk in with their certain colored paper and she would know to clean up the room because here comes a wedding. People getting married and running and going off to the service and stuff. And so there was a lot of that while he was the bishop, which I was so young, I don't remember that. Um, one thing I do remember about her was she had a lot of quietness about her. And some people would use the word shy, but I just, I won't use that because it's a label-y. But when she was asked to give a talk or teach a class, she was scared to death, trembling, fearful, um, not confident and, and scared to death. And yet, she continued to accept assignments because she believed that was the right thing to do and became calmer and more proficient and grew a ton in her ability to present herself um, verbally. And so back when they were in the temple presidency and they had to go talk to different wards throughout the stakes and even the region, she was able to do that and be calm and, and feel joy. So I am totally impressed by where she came from, which was like, I am scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> and she just, you know, worked with the spirit. She says, the spirit comes kind of late in my preparations, you know. I get these great ideas right before the lesson, and I was, you know, I'm working so hard on my lesson. And so anyway, that was, I, I consider that a nice, humble sign. Um... Another thing was in her humility was she would not seek nor accept special privileges. Um, somebody tried to give a special seating at a state conference. You know, here, come sit on the second row, Sister Ison, And she refused. She would not accept that. She did not want to be, I don't know what was in her mind. My guess would be, I will not take advantage of a leadership thing. You know, we are to serve. We're not to be receiving service, something like that, mm -hmm. which is an interesting piece. But, you know, it, she's never going to be prideful. You know, so the opposite of being prideful, which I think is kind of amazing. She's a great homemaker. She kept our house tidy. She had us doing jobs so that things were maintained and and never, well, I don't say never messy. Just She just helped, helped us keep things kind of maintain and she 
was a very good cook. Things were flavorful, flavorful. Three meals a day, you know, from our home, homemade bread, which of course we didn't appreciate. We really liked Eddie's bread. It was nice and gooey. <laughs> that we could pull the the um, crusts off and wad it up in a little ball and eat it, and we that was just like cake to us. We loved that, and we had homemade bread in our school sandwiches all the time, and it was like kind of embarrassing. That was back before it was cool. Now it's cool, but um, <laughs> I remember not having treats in my lunch, and so Halloween was the only time where I had things to trade because you traded your treats, you know, mm-hmm. at school. So that was then, but everybody had treats then, so it really wasn't a very good tr- treat, kind of a trading what market. Kinda, what kind of treats did other kids have? What was a treat back then? Well, those marshmallowy snowball things, that's mm-hmm. very common. Okay. Which I wouldn't like them anyway because they had coconut on them, but mm-hmm. I'm not trading you one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but that seemed like a common thing. But our lunch was you have a bologna or a cheese sandwich and some chips and maybe a cookie and... Maybe a fruit, you know, something like that. Pretty common and repetitive and fine. <laughs> but, but I didn't get to make any social showings with that. Um, she taught us as much as we would learn about sewing. And she taught me how to crochet because I asked, teach me how that. So she taught me that. And she taught us how to cook as much as we would allow. <laughs> And pretty modest choices. I felt like I couldn't ask my parents for anything that costs money because it just it probably wasn't there, and so don't ask. I remember one time I really wanted a Ben Casey blouse. That might not mean anything to anybody under 50 or 60 <laughs> or 70. He was a medical show, a doctor show on TV, and so it was a blouse with a high collar with buttons that went down one shoulder, kind of like a doctor's, old-fashioned doctor's shirt. And she said, no, it would go out of fashion too soon. And so, you know, if you're gonna make something or buy something, buy something classic that will last through the seasons, which is totally true, <laughs> but I wasn't gonna get a Ben Casey blouse out of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember the summer before I got married, did some sewing, as she encouraged me to do. I remember I made a white blouse with three rows on each side of lace going down the front. And I very much impressed my fiancé. He was amazed that I knew how to sew and I'd made something so cute. And I went, oh, okay, that's cool. (laughs) And I made my own wedding dress, as several of my sisters did. So it it served me well and helped me clothe my kids after I got married. How long did it take you to make your wedding dress? Probably off and on for two or three weeks. You know, just you know, great buy on the fabric. And I remember bleeding on it with a pin that my, poked my finger and I had to oh, no. get some cold water and swab it out and it came out. Thank you very much. And I designed something about the sleeve, which I thought was very creative. And so I felt beautiful and it worked, fit really well and it was, it was a good positive experience. Let's see, what else? Um, I'm impressed that how supportive she was to dad. He was a very busy man, worked very hard, gathering the eggs twice a day and milking the cows twice a day and church service and, you know, trying to make enough money to feed the family and not, wasn't very involved in our lives as girls, 
but he was involved in what he knew how to do and what he thought was significant. But she made sure the meals were on the table for him and made sure that we were out of the way in his bathroom when he came loping through <laughs> and hooking his bibbed overalls. Well, do not be in dad's bathroom when he comes running, okay? <laughs> okay, get out of the bathroom. He needs, he needs to go because, you know, it's, it's his time. Um, a couple of things and um, other things that I appreciate about, appreciate about her was I felt like she never... Um, compared us as, as children and daughters. I think that's a great gift. You know, she saw our own strengths and would mention them. You know, she would talk to us about what she thought we were good at. And there wasn't any of this, you know, why aren't you getting good grades like so-and-so or why can't you do this like so-and-so. You know, it was each of us growing in our own strengths, which I think is a terrific parenting skill. And then that continued as even in her aging years, she would be tender with me about what she saw growing in me. And she's saying, you know, for all you've been through, you're just doing really well. I'm so proud of you. And, and so that felt sweet and nurturing. And so amazing thing about her is she aged, she got sweeter, which is a wonderful gift. Because <laughs> right. if you get crankier, it's really not fun for the people around you. That's but, true. You know, Dad got a little gruffer, but, you know, she maintained her sweetness and her gratitude and her love of babies. She did love babies. She didn't give up on them after her staying with Aunt, Aunt Grace. <laughs> <laughs> she renewed that, and she loved all of our babies. You know, she was very much a champion. You get a T-shirt on that baby. <laughs> Don't you take that baby in that car that's going to break down. <laughs> There's a little pressure with her love for our babies. <laughs> but she was very supportive of you know, me having my babies and bringing them home to her, and she loved them well. And, and um, I think, um, you know, she served beautifully in her life with raising kids and being loyal to God and encouraging my loyalty to God and her not showy, not pushy, a little bit warning. I never liked her like when she had to warn me about be careful, be careful. But, you know, a very subtle, I knew what I could count on from her. And she, I think she kept the faith to the end and is probably having a great, beautiful life with a husband who's learning to be more and more gentle with her. That's my assurance anyway. So that's my story about my mom. Awesome. Um, do you have... Did she have... Uh, room anything funny about her? Did she, did she Did she ever make jokes or anything? She didn't see, that doesn't seem like her personality, but anything funny you can think about her yeah, she's not a jokester she just kind of took care of business she would delight in children's happiness you know if children were laughing you know she could join in on that I guess she's pretty serious mm-hmm she appreciated the people they met and served with that's not jokey, but that's like her getting outside of herself. You know, people that she'd served with were dear to her heart, which is kind of sweet for her to just said she just said the nicest things about the people that she'd worked in the temple with. Right. And maintained relationships with them. Did um I know I know she was like super busy, but what were did she have 
you can you think of like interests that she had or things that she was like were there movies that she liked or what what were the things that she liked to do if she f- could find spare time to do something that she enjoyed doing she did not have a waste time kind of thing to, in, in my opinion <laughs> she had uh, crafty kinds of skills that she liked to do she did the sugar eggs and sold some of them she and Hertha learned to make wedding mints and they made them for family weddings and they sold those um, she made the did the painting on the faces of these china dolls Oh, yeah. And made one for each of us kids. The pressing of the flowers, that's what I remember. Yes, she took grandkids on um, flower-finding trips and pressed flowers, and then she would glue them on cards and make handmade cards. And her sewing was probably a high happy thing for her because she made lovely things and the clothes she made us were nicely made and you know window coverings and and that so that sewing I think was hard but it brought her a lot of joy and she'd sew clothes for our dolls at Christmas and that was a joyful thing and what else crafty did she do actually one time she had another sales thing in her um, home which was uh, lingerie, because there weren't really modest nightgowns in the stores, and so she brought this product in, I think it was called Levois, L-E-V-O-Y-S, <laughs> and she had those hanging in the living room somewhere, and they all had sleeves and were slickery pretty, and, and those were available when I got married, so I bought a couple of those. So and, she was selling those? Uh-huh. Oh, so that a, there would be something modest for people to wear on their oh, honeymoon in how, their life. How cute of her. <laughs> yeah. And she also sold wheat grinders so that, you know, and, and was able to get one for herself that lasted many, many years that I actually have now too. So those kinds of things, they pretty much had to be uh, prove their worth in order for her to have a... <laughs> I know. That's what I was going to say. It's kind of interesting that her hobbies had to be very... Practical. Practical and useful. Productive, yeah. Productive, yeah. So her reading would be something that related to uh, Education Week that she'd gone to or something like that. I didn't see her read what I would consider for fun. You know, it was for her own learning and her own spiritual growth. Right. So, yeah. What were, what do you think some of the greatest lessons you learned from her were? I think... um, Calm kindness is a lesson that I appreciate from her. And baby crazy baby love, you know, just treasuring life and and babies that come. I think tolerating discomfort and, you know, moving forward, not having to have your own way all the time. That flexibility of let's make sure other people get some things they need. So I think those are lessons that serve serve the world well and I choose I choose to uh, absorb some of those um, I love that lesson that I've mentioned a couple times that you see the uniqueness and strengths of a person rather than comparing them or criticizing them I think that's a wonderful quality that I like to live in and loyalty to the Savior I think that's deeply significant for me that you know no matter how much or how how much or how little I know about what's going to go on in heaven. I have faith that that's the direction that I want. 
and loyal to her husband, you know, I didn't ever worry about them being mean as in trying to do something weird in their marriage. I just felt like they were committed to that and they would go visit the old people even when they were old. (laughs) (laughs) Caring for people. (laughs) And dad was kind of initiator in uh, uh, reaching out to those who were less abled. He hired some people to help him that wouldn't be able to get a job anywhere else and, mm-hmm. and helped people out there, and she kind of supported that. She had some people in her life that were kind of like that, that she was bringing over to dinner, and she would be the one that would kind of circle in the singles that didn't have a husband or a family and bring them out to dinner and include them, like Nan and Anita Norris that eventually married. But, you know, that kind of Sorry, just looking, about, out, looking out for others without... No fanfare, you know. You're not going to hear them run up on the ramiumptum and tell everybody how cool they are. (laughs) That's not their style. Right. So I appreciate those things. There's some humility and some strength there. I agree with you as far as that goes. Um, Do you ever remember being? Did she ever? Did she maintain like? I guess what I'm asking is, does she ever have? periods of time where you saw her get sad or depressed or were, were there any times like that? I think her health was pretty fragile as in not a lot of energy and I think she would get worn out and then if I saw her crying it would be awful because of course I assumed it was something I had done which it might have been <laughs> <laughs> disappointed her or probably and I, I imagine a lot of it was overwhelmed just so much to do and only 24 hours in the day so that's the piece that you know when she just didn't have good energy or she had a leg that if I sat on her lap you know I hurt her leg so she had some things body wise that weren't super vigorous and so I think that might have been a hard thing and then I don't you know I don't consider dad a nurturer so if she needed nurturing it had to come through her service you know, of that kind of a feeling. So that, and she had hard pregnancies. Um, she had a couple of miscarriages. I'm, I, I guess I can't remember right now. If I, but anyway, yeah, and so some of her pregnancies were very, very difficult. And I think that health thing where you just don't have any more energy was, was a fragile thing for her. Not necessarily mental health, because I think she was pretty hardy that way. Not that she would know that, but... You know, she did not go into bouts of depression and disappear. Mm-hmm. She just was steady. She's a little pioneer. She's steady, wasn't she? Yeah. Is there was there anything um, as a as a child? Was there anything that she did that surprised you? She came home talking about s'mores. <laughs> I think she learned it at like a. <laughs> whatever you know, like a church meeting or something she was so excited about s'mores that's the first time we'd ever heard the phrase so yeah for her to be excited about something that was like really yummy (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll all be right behind you on fixing s'mores did she initiate that then and sure yeah that became something common for us to do that you know so it must have started with somebody way back in my childhood that was a new thing (laughs) you know the crackers and the chocolate and the 
marshmallows. That's hard to imagine that not always being a thing. Exactly. That it was this new Something thing. Something new. Tang. Yeah, we got tang. <laughs> <laughs> Chocolate milk, you know, the, the highlights of a uh, little bit of sugar. You know. All right. Another thing she did that was really cool was, you know, we're probably big for candy. I don't know. So at one point she started buying, back then the candy bars were a nickel. Amazing. She'd buy some and put them in a drawer, and if we wanted one, we'd just put our money in and take one out. That was radical for us to have sugar, you know, at our fingertips. did not last very long. I don't know <laughs> if we weren't putting our coins in or if they were disappeared in two days, and she goes, this is not going to work for me. I don't know how that was. So it didn't work as good as the garments. <laughs> exactly. It didn't last <laughs> decades upon decades. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Is there anything that you think she would have wanted to do during her life that she didn't get to do? That would be a really interesting question. I, I would guess she would have a hard time answering that. Tanya, Tanya is thinking about something. She always wanted to go to Hawaii. Uh, oh, maybe so. I mean, I don't remember that, but I think I she always... I remember hearing her say something like that. Her dad, her grandpa always wished he would have taken her. Okay. They got, they got to go to Jerusalem or something? Or maybe that's some... I heard it from one of the sisters or something... There's something in my mind that says she always wanted to go to Hawaii and she didn't get to go. That would be interesting. I know when they got to go to the Holy Land, it was a suggestion that someone like Sterling W. Seal, somebody, and I, I'm not sure that's the right one, suggested decades before, you need to take your wife to the Holy Land. And she had that in the back of her mind. And when they finally got to go, she went, yes. How, <laughs> how old were they when they did that? Um, I don't know. He retired in his late 60s, maybe 70, you know, so it's probably somewhere in there. The other thing I do remember she wanted, she says, I always wished I could play the violin. So that's some, the kind of thing. It's still that something that's a, of service. <laughs> <laughs> she was the adequate, very little singer, you know, she sang in the singing mothers till her voice didn't do, work so good anymore. So... She got to do that. She never talked about longing to be with, you know, she didn't have girlfriends. She had church friends. And uh -huh. the best, most girlfriends she had was Aunt Loma. She longed for more time with her. Right. Didn't, very, didn't everybody. Yeah. Everyone who met Loma, she was, yeah. that's how yeah. she was. So anyway, they've got the girlfriend time now. That's good. <laughs> yeah. What kind of mom, like, was she, was she very nurturing? As a mom? I think um, she was good with us your early school. I don't remember tons of hugs, but I think we got to sit on her lap, and Sunday she'd read us the funnies, and, and that was kind of nurture time. And she encouraged us to read books. Um, I don't remember hug stuff, you know, after junior high, high school. I don't remember that kind of a thing. But she was a good listener. She'd be cooking at the stove, and I'd come stand at the bar and tell her my day and just effort, overflow, effort flow, everything I needed to say about Mrs. Wagner or whatever was going on, and she would listen without lecturing and interrupting. So she probably got a big scoop on my life because I'd, I'm sure she could read between the lines of whatever was going on with me. But So she was willing to do that listening and not confrontive stuff. That's so, pretty sweet of her yeah, to do that. that is, yeah, that's, that's a, a hard that's piece. a hard thing to do too. Yeah, because you know they're probably not very interesting what I had to say. So, 
but yeah, she was willing to listen. So I give her a lot of points for that. That's cool. Who, um, out of the sisters, who do you think was the most like her? Who, what sister do you think is the most like your mom that your mom has the most in common with? I think it's Jocelyn. Mm-hmm. Jocelyn is a, a conscious homemaker. Does a beautiful job of organizing, getting things done, and cooking and sewing, and and a lot of good basic life skills. And she chooses to be soft-spoken and and calm, and and may have some of that tenuous kind of quietness about her, where she's not blowing her horn, but you know, and a little bit maybe scared about um, presentation, but does a beautiful job. So. That, that kind of stuff reminds me of her. That's cool. Um, when you guys, when the sisters get together, what are some of the things that you guys do? I'm, a, I'm assuming that you possibly joke and laugh about some things that maybe about, about your mom or things that she might have done. Does anything come to mind when we talk about that? No, we just joke about dad. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, mom is off the hook. It's yeah, plenty of stuff about dad to joke about. That's right. That's right. You joke about the one that is the most memorable or something. I don't know what the right word would be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, I think we covered it pretty well as far as that goes. Is there anything else that comes to mind for you or anything else? I just... I don't know, appreciate her range of gifts and the fact that, you know, she wouldn't allow us to practice anything really stupid, you know, like to be boorish or pushy or, you know, she was an encourager of even keel. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a blessing and a curse depending how you're looking at it. But, you know, I knew what I could count on from her. Yeah, it's a very... As you said, steady, very steady person. A couple things I've chosen to do differently than her because I didn't like it, but that's all good stuff too. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, we all have to choose our own path and yeah. how we want to, how we want to live out our life. Yeah. If she was here, if she was here now, what would you want to go do with her? Let's see what might please her. I would take her around to meet all the babies and the, the kids. She mm. would love, she loves family gatherings. She, that is a standard for her, you know, to know something about your ancestors and appreciate them and then gather as a present family. And so that's what would be a treasure for her is to go meet all my kids, grandkids, renewed, see those babies. That would, that would please her. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, I think we got it. Thanks, right. Mom. Thanks, Josh. As promised, I wanted to provide a little treat at the end of this. And what this is, I'm going to play a song that Laura Dawn suggested that she said that Donna really liked named Alice Blue Down. And if you're not driving right now, I'd love it if you could take a minute, close your eyes, and imagine mom or grandma, however you know her, in the kitchen. We all know, we all know that kitchen well. 
in there cooking dinner for the family. She's wearing um, a shirt waist house dress is what Laura Dawn explained it as, which is kind of had a bunched up waist around it. And it was a dress and a pink apron over the top of it. And she's in there stirring gravy, peeling potatoes, getting dinner ready for the family. She's either humming or she's quietly singing along as she prepares the meal for the family. But just thought it'd be fun to take a minute to think about that, bring her into your heart and uh, have her be a part of the next few minutes. Sweet little Alice Bougon When I first wandered down into town I was both proud and shy As I felt every eye And in every shop window I'd bring passing by when in manner of fashion I'd frown and the world seemed to smile all Smile. 